You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. My fellow Americans, tonight with a heart full of gratitude and boundless optimism, I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Ezra Klein. I'm up past my bedtime, uh, past midnight here on the East Coast, because the Republican National Convention just wrapped up. Uh, We wanted to talk about it in a a timely way. It kind of ended... Well, it literally ended with a fireworks display, which as a fireworks fan, I have to say was pretty cool. But before that was Trump's speech, which to me was just kind of a a weird dud. Um, I saw it was it was longer even than Bill Clinton's infamous 1996 convention speech. And unlike Bill Clinton, you know, Clinton would do these long speeches that people would hate because they're not well written. Um, but they were no, these, no, no. like pundits hated them. Like the American people like these speeches. Exactly. That, that that was my point. They were not uh, very artful, but they were like chock full of policy. It was like, here's a million things Bill Clinton is doing to help you. This is not that either. It, it seemed rambling and, and weird to me more than anything else. I would say it was the third best speech I saw a Trump give this week sort of behind <laughs> um, Ivanka, Ivanka and Don Jr. Um, I actually did not see Eric's speech, so I, I heard good things about it. I actually thought the text of the speech was better than, than than other people did. I actually thought it was a little bit like a Bill Clinton speech where it was a long policy list. I was most interested going into that speech to see the way Donald Trump would try to frame his own record. Because when you are like governing America and 170,000 or if you believe the New York Times, 200,000 or more Americans have died of coronavirus and unemployment is 10.3%, like that's a hard thing to explain. And my take on the speech is that his strategy is to like try and claim credit for something he didn't do and then like dodge blame for something he did do. So on the one hand, there's this argument that he makes and that you heard across the entire RNC that six months ago, the economy was awesome, right? Unemployment was at its lowest rate ever for African-Americans, for Hispanics, um, for women. And like Donald Trump wants all the credit for that. And then China gave America this virus. And like, you can't blame Donald Trump for something China did, but like, rest assured, he's going to make them pay. And both of these things are like sort of narrowly true. And then in a broader, uh, I think, like way we would normally evaluate a president untrue. So Donald Trump's economy was simply Obama's economy with three more years to run. I was running the math on this. And uh, in the the last three years of Obama's administration, 
job growth, monthly job growth was somewhat higher than it was in the first three years of Trump's. It was something like 226,000 a month versus 182,000. If I'm remembering this correctly, it's up on a piece I wrote for, for Vox.com. So the, the Trump economy, which, you know, you're allowed to take credit for if you're president, but that was really just like the momentum of the Obama economy. Like if you run a chart of jobs over the last 10 years, you can really see where it turns around from the financial crisis under Obama. You cannot see where Donald Trump takes right. office. But then coronavirus, he's done a really horrible job. Like if you look at America compared to the European Union, compared to Canada, compared to Asia, we have way higher case counts. We have way more people dead. He tried to to muddy this by saying we have a lower case fatality rate, which is you you take your total cases and then like see what proportion of people are dying. There are a lot of reasons that might happen in a country with way more cases. Like for instance, it may be ripping uh, among more young people, but like that's why you track case rates and you track death rates where we are utterly um, alone uh, with maybe the exception of Spain among rich nations. And he wants no blame for that. Like that's all China's fault. It's all somebody else's fault. He's done great with what he had. Like it's a real running away from from your own record. It's a really weak reelection message if you take away all the Trump bombast and just judge it on the merits. I am inclined to give Trump a little bit more credit for for the strong economy than most liberals I know. Uh, But I wish that he would actually articulate it more clearly because it would help greatly improve public understanding of the the economy. And the thing is, is that, you know, Trump took over at a time when a lot of people, you know, Obama administration economists, pundits, a lot of business people were saying, well, we're close to full employment, right? The unemployment rate is down below 5%. And Trump came in and he acted like he was taking over in the midst of what was still a labor market recession. And he dramatically increased the budget deficit. He enacted a huge tax cut, a huge increase in military spending, a huge increase in domestic discretionary spending, and continued to let the uh, entitlement state grow unabated. And it it worked, right? It's true. It wasn't like the most incredible pace of job growth. But if we had gone on you know, a more conventional, austere policy. If we had had Democrat policies where we raise taxes and then we increase spending, but by less than we raise taxes by to say we're shrinking the budget deficit, like that would have led to a worse outcome. Um, and so I say, like, good for Donald Trump, good for Congress, good for that dynamic where Republican presidents come in and suddenly business leaders forget that they care about the deficit. Like, I, I think it genuinely helped. Um, and he he made some good Federal Reserve appointees. But what Republicans say they do is like generate economic growth with like the magic of deregulation. And then, of course, when they're out of power, they push for austerity policies. Uh, And now in the current ongoing economic crisis that Trump takes no responsibility for, he's not going back to the the stimulus well, right? And and the most frustrating thing to me as somebody who just cares about uh, people separate from, from the election is that we keep having Trump's talk about like how bad it would be to defund the police and how good the economy was before. But like right now, state and local government budgets are collapsing because Republicans won't agree to do, you know, any substantial aid measures. And like if Trump actually wanted to do something to boost his reelection prospects by making things better, he he would try to 
address those things. Although I guess, I mean, on, on some level, I, I mean, watching the whole convention, right? There's like a million takes like, oh, nobody's going to care that he's violating the Hatch Act. I mean, which I think is true. But it's it, it's just it's really hard to say that like anyone has cared about anything that has happened across these past three and a half incredibly exhausting years. This is to me one of the ways in which like all political narrativization of conventions is wrong. Because like what happens is political reporters like you and me, we sit there and we watch every minute of the convention, which no normal human being does. And then like we really marinate in it and like we like know the arguments and the counterarguments. And you know, we we then have this sort of imaginary question of like is this going to convince people? And there's often convention bounces in one direction or another, though there is some evidence that might be response bias where partisans respond more often right after the convention. But those bounces tend to go away. Conventions uh, tend to decay. Like we talked about the Democratic convention last week, and I've forgotten most of it. And I remember being really alarmed by the first night of the Republican convention this week, but I've also forgotten most of that. Like, like, like this, like just life goes on. But it's more than that. Donald Trump has the most eerily stable political approval numbers we've ever seen in a president. I've been fixated on this. So one year ago today, Trump's approval was 41.3. I'm looking at the 538 approval tracker. Trump's approval was 41.3 and his disapproval is 51.2. One year ago today. So then 170,000 or 200,000 people die from coronavirus. Unemployment goes up to 10.3%. Donald Trump gets a bunch of protesters tear gassed as he walks to do a a photo op holding a Bible. One year later, all that has happened, his approval rating is 42.2% and his disapproval is 54.3%. So his approval went up by a point and his disapproval went up by three points. That is very little. Um, Trump isn't just stable. He's weirdly stable. So if you look at, say, now I'm looking at Gallup numbers. If you look at Bill Clinton's first term, his top approval rating was 73% and his bottom was 37 If you look at Reagan's first term, his top approval rating was 68%. His bottom was 35 Trump's range has been 37 was his bottom, so same as Clinton, and his top was 49 it's just much narrower than it has been for any other president. And that's true if you look at Obama, true if you look at George W. Bush. So there is a way, I don't want to say nothing matters that is going too far with it. A lot has mattered, but it had mattered early enough that people fixed their opinions of this guy. And it moves a little bit. There are some people you can change their minds. But for most people, like they knew what they thought of him on day one, roughly. And they're not changing their uh, opinion on any of this. And, you know, I I mean, it's interesting because I would have said for a long time, okay, look, what we have is a president who's um, presiding over actually fairly benign conditions, right? Like all the terrible things Democrats kept warning would happen if you like put a nincompoop in charge didn't actually seem to be happening. But at the same time, he was not like maturing or growing or acting more statesmanlike or compassionate or anything like that. So he was neither getting the credit for sort of, you know, peace and prosperity, uh, nor was he falling down on the in the numbers the way liberals sort of felt he deserved to. And I I would have thought, I mean, you know, I, I think you got to own up to when things take you by surprise. I would have said 
a year ago that, well, the kind of thing that will move Trump's numbers is if some big disaster strikes and it seems like he's maybe not up for the job, right? That that will validate all these kind of concerns that have been voiced over and over and over again. And, you know, you look at it two ways, right? Because one way to look at it is, well, his numbers haven't moved, so it doesn't matter at all. Uh, The other way is that a lot of incumbents have seen their numbers go up as a result of this crisis, right? Bad things are happening, but the leaders are seen as like rising to the moment in a non-ideological way. And Trump is obviously not getting that. He just kind of has his base with him. But it's, it's confounding. And one thing that I think people need to realize, though, is that the significance of that stability is flipping, right? For so much of Trump's presidency, the stability was a source of frustration to progressives, right, who were constantly getting mad about stuff and then being told, like, ha, 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 that's not going to hurt Trump. But Trump is losing now, and he's been losing for months, even though his approval rating hasn't dramatically changed, Biden has consolidated a larger share of the non-Trump vote than Hillary did. And so he's clearly ahead in the polls, not by an insurmountable amount, but like it's now Trump who needs something to change or else he's going to just lose. It's no longer good enough to like not collapse in, in the numbers. And that's why, you know, It's not that there was anything catastrophic about this convention or anything that would change people's minds or everyone's glued to it, but almost that's the problem for Trump, right? There's a finite number of days left and a finite number of events in those days. And I don't think anyone, if they're being honest, saw at this convention something that if you two weeks ago were like, yeah, I've hated Trump forever and Joe Biden's fine. Like, it's still the same. It's the same Trump. It's the same Biden. And, you know, it's a it's a problem for him. I think you really see the difference here in the two conventions, the way that Trump basically takes those numbers as immovable and 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 Biden's his opportunity in them. So as I, as I mentioned, you're looking with Trump at a 42% approval and um, a 54%, I think it was, disapproval. And Donald Trump ran a convention and the Republicans ran a convention that was very base motivating, that was very much like if you are into Republican stuff, I I thought uh, our colleague Zach Beecham, uh, he called it like the Fox News Cinematic Universe. Like if you're into the Fox News Cinematic Universe, you got a lot of fan service at this convention. But they did not make an effort to reach out to people who don't vote for them. There was not a like a like a new message or a new strategy or a new set of policies unveiled uh, that would explain like why you who've not really liked Donald Trump or you've been worried about say his coronavirus response you should feel better about it now whereas Joe Biden's convention was very much aimed um through a lot of it at this delta that the democrats believe exists between the number of people who don't like the job Donald Trump is doing and like the number of people who are going to vote for Democrats. So like I think Democrats believe they start with something like let's call it like 46 47% of the vote. And they think there's something like I would say they believe in their heart of hearts like up to 60% of the country, maybe a little bit less is willing to vote against Donald Trump or doesn't really like him. And it's like they are trying to convince this middle group who doesn't really like Democrats but doesn't really like 
Donald Trump. It's like the like the Joe Rogans of the world. They like the the Democrats. You may not love them, but you don't have to worry about them. And so the Democratic convention was like a lot of soft edges. Uh, um, Romney, I'm sorry, Romney. She doesn't use that name anymore. Uh, McDaniel, the the RNC chair. She said, you know, the, the Democratic convention, the argument for Joe Biden was that he's a nice guy. And like that was to some degree true and was also obviously by design. They were trying to say to people like pretty wide tent here. You're all welcome in it. And it just it's a very strange. I mean, Donald Trump won this way in 2016 as the challenger. But as the incumbent, you'd want to grow, um, particularly when your win was that razor thin. And the fact that he really just has this one speed is I think a, a real a real issue for them. Well, and there's a there's a structural difference, right? So like one of the big things that happened in the, the, the Democratic convention is that a lot of other people who ran for president uh sort of like paid homage to Biden, but not in a not in a subservient way, but in a like this is a this is a team way, right? I mean it was best exemplified by like the Zoom call of the lesser 2020 candidates who were like all kind of hanging out and having fun and being like, yeah, we got to know each other and we also like Joe Biden. And then Bernie Sanders, who who did better and, and Elizabeth Warren, they got like set piece speeches of their own. And John Kasich, who was a, a Republican Party primary loser, like he also did a speech, right? So it was like a bunch of big time politicians, uh, plus two different ex-presidents, all being like, okay, Joe Biden, right? So the idea was that these were all people of stature collaborating together and trying to assemble this slightly inchoate uh, left of center group of Americans and like get them to all vote for the same guy. Right. I mean, basically, in the theory that what happened in 2016 is that only 46 percent of the country voted for Trump, but the other 54 percent like were split. And so Trump won. But to say this time, it's like, no, everybody should vote for Joe. The Republican convention was so focused on Trump's family members and these kind of um random people, you know, like Dana White from the UFC gave, I thought, like, actually one of the better speeches. Um, but not to say he's a nobody, like he's a sort of famous person, but he's not a, a person of political standing. And they had, a, you know, like a famous, a well-known college football coach talk about how he likes Donald Trump. Um, there, there were these like fly-ins from Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy that were very sort of pat. And there were no like big names from the past. There were no intra-party rivals because it's like Trump is is the son of the, the, the Trump solar system. And then like Ivanka is the biggest more moderate face of the party. And Don Jr. speaks to the base, right? So it's very, it's very narrow cast in its way. And then these kind of like, you know, weirdo Fox News characters. Um, but I, when, I, I, when Trump, when Trump, as he opened up his speech tonight, said, I want to thank Ivanka and all of my children. Sure. I couldn't stop laughing. That was the cruelest thing I have ever seen happen on national television. It's weird. I mean, Trump family dynamics are weird. <laughs> Ivanka and all of my other children. Oh, my God. You know, like one parallel between the conventions that was striking that was that like actually both conventions featured examples of people telling you about the candidate's extraordinary interpersonal kindness. Uh, but the stories about Biden like really are extraordinary, 
right? Like to the point that they're like a little weird, right? Like it's like this kid with the stutter and Biden helps him or like the stranger at the Amtrak station, which the stories about Trump are all like, I was in the hospital and he gave me a call. You know, like they're not like he doesn't actually go out of his way to do it. When Steve Scalise got up and said, like, you don't all know the Donald Trump I know. I, as a member of the Republican House leadership, was shot and Donald Trump called me in the hospital. It's like, yeah, like, of course. I mean, like, <laughs> I don't want Steve Scalise to be shot and I don't want Donald Trump to not call him in the hospital. But if you didn't, like if the president didn't call a member of House leadership who was shot and was in the hospital, it would be a very notable fact. Right. Well, and also the point of the Biden stories was that he went out of his way to help people who he'd sort of encountered randomly. Right. Yes. That like he is just like aware and empathetic. Steve Scalise is a very important person. Right. Like it it, it doesn't demonstrate anything while we're being a little like on the on the human level of this the other version of this that i just thought was super strange throughout the convention and it appeared in a bunch of speeches and then trump himself said it was the thing where republican speakers kept thanking donald trump for giving up his awesome life as a billionaire to selflessly run for president um it, it's so dear leader like oh like you have sacrificed yourself so we can rise and then Trump said, you know, in his speech, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, but but it was something like, you know, like, I had a great life and now I'm here fighting for the... It's just such a weird... It is such a weird version of Noblesse Oblige. Um, there were a lot of very weird personality cult dynamics of the convention. Other people have done this to death, and I know this is weeds, but the policy is very much like the second order thing. And the Trump meta narrative is very much the first order thing at the convention and the absence of any other kind of like truly validating figures right um, you know past presidents from the republican party like uh like other key members of it like history for this republican party started in 2016 when or 2015 when donald trump came down the escalator and everything revolves around people's relationship to, to donald trump i mean it is very uh uh north korean Yes. Okay. So that, that, let's take a break, though, and I, I want to talk about sort of how how things have changed over, over the past four years. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So you wrote, I, I hope you remember it because I remember it, a, a really good piece in the in the 2016 campaign. And it was about this kind of riff that Trump had about how, like, I've been greedy all my life and now I'm going to be greedy for you. 
which I thought was connected to this like hagiography about how he'd given up that this awesome thing. And it was it was once part of the promise of Trumpism, right? Which was never defined super clearly in policy terms. But thematically, it, it was something to do with how there was a swamp in Washington and things were corrupt and that Trump was going to be this like outsider who was so rich that he wasn't dependent on anybody and he was going to come in and he was really going to fight for you. And I feel like we haven't like heard much about that in the past three and a half years of him actually being president. And then suddenly it like comes back in this jarring way in the convention, right? This idea, like Ivanka kept saying that like, you know, he was a disruptor. He was dangerous to Washington. So, okay. You, so know, Trump- you know how Washington hates getting those corporate tax cuts. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing. So like Trump lies, like who cares, right? But it is very much the lost promise of Trumpism, right? Because like, it's true that he was an outsider to the Republican Party, that he didn't owe anything to the traditional party structures, that he demonstrated that a lot of the old ideological dogmas in the GOP side didn't actually hold purchase over their voters. And it like, it, it was a conceptual opportunity to actually innovate on public policy and try to do something. And he just didn't, right? They like, the amount of time that was spent at this convention talking about how he relocated the U.S. embassy in Israel is like mind-blowing, right? Like, it just goes to show that like he hasn't actually done very much that he would like to talk about. Um, That like, everybody can work in this actually unimportant thing about where the embassy is located. There is a a number of weird sub themes. Like, for instance, if you were listening to this convention, you might have thought like the singular focus of the Trump administration is school choice, right? That like all they care about is vouchers in schools, which they have not seriously pushed in any way. Infrastructure was just curiously absent throughout the entire convention. I thought they would keep making the argument that next week will be infrastructure week, but they didn't. And as you say, there was a an effort to reprise the hits of 2016. Trump gave a 40-minute interview to the New York Times' Peter Baker this week, and he said that he still feels like an outsider. And there could be a tendency on Twitter to laugh at that, like, how can you be an outsider and be the most powerful man in the world and, and, and be the occupant of the White House? But I think there's also a truth to it. Donald Trump continues to act as president as if he has no real relationship to the political system itself. He doesn't know what it does exactly. He doesn't always care what it does. He doesn't push things very hard within it. So there are certain things he can do on his own, certain executive orders or certain foreign policy moves, and he likes doing that kind of thing. Um, He's very proud of hostage negotiation uh, efforts. But when it comes to an actual agenda, that's not where his interest is. And so he still has an emotional level of detachment that makes some of that ring true literally to him. And things that ring true to him are important in this convention because a huge number of these speeches were for him. They were people trying to get closer to the king at the court. And you could hear this uh, across the board, right? They were, you would listen to these lines and you knew they were not for voters. They were for Donald Trump as a person who was hoping to ingratiate themselves up to and including his family. Ivanka Trump's speeches are always particularly strange because she is trying to walk the line 
between presenting a version of her father that her um her former social circle would recognize. And it was interesting to hear her tonight grappling with the way she has changed, probably the way she the way she is viewed has changed. So she went up there and said, you know, D- Donald Trump has made many of us reevaluate what we really stand for, what we really value. And right, that was her saying, like, I used to be a, a New York liberal and now I'm hated by all those people and, and maybe want to have a future in Republican Party politics. But more generally, she then offered this laundry list of like random things about the child tax credit and paid family leave, things that Donald Trump does not really fight for in a big way, does not support in a big way, does not want to make bigger. Um, But she wants to present this almost normal version. She was talking about how she was in the room with him and he kept saying, I want those dairy farmers to be happy with the trade deal, which it's true. He, He really took care of dairy farmers in the trade deal, but other than that, didn't do all that much in the trade deal. And so they just stumble in this respect, because they don't have much record to run on because Donald Trump isn't doing it for that. And that always just, it creates a tension inside the party for the people who want to make an ideology out of Trumpism. And Donald Trump, for whom he understands that the connection between him and his allies is a culture war connection. What he understands about the base is they want respect and they want the country to stop demographically changing so fast. And he's like there on their side of that fight in a very real way. He'll sign with the Republicans of Congress send him, but he doesn't care about it and he's not engaged in it. Although this is where, right, so I, I thought the one thing that the convention did that was interesting, that was the sort of evolution of Trumpian uh, culture war themes is that there was much more emphasis this time than you've you certainly than you saw in 2016 or that you've normally seen from Republicans at uh, showing people of color as speakers. And that involved not just like Ben Carson as the sort of token black person in the cabinet or or the guy who's the attorney general of Kentucky, but also people who were helped by the First Step Act, the white widow of a black police officer in St. Louis. Um, There was a a lot. There were a lot of Cuban-American speakers. What's interesting about it is that you do see it reflected in the polls. This generates so much cognitive dissonance in a lot of the, the liberals I know that I feel like I have to say it nine times. But as best people can tell, Trump is doing better with Black and Latin voters than he was in 2016, and quite a bit worse with, with white ones. And not he's not doing well uh, with non-white voters, but he is doing better, um, even as he's doing worse overall. And you're getting a a view of exactly what I think people sometimes say Trump doesn't do, but is creating a more multi-ethnic version of conservative cultural politics uh, based around these kind of law and order themes, I guess, um, and certain ideas about you know, like hard work and and redemption, uh, individualism, uh, th- things like that, and it's interesting, you know, because I think I, I think it's something that strikes a lot of liberal people as like so absurd that it gets dismissed or seen exclusively as a as a bank shot, um, and like Trump is obviously not going to be the person to like bring this home, but I do think it's a it's a real trend in American politics that should be paid some attention to that just as 
just as when Trump won, it wasn't it wasn't like what people thought a winning Republican campaign would look like. I think successful outreach to non-white voters may end up not looking like what people expect. Dig in a bit on on the data there. How how big are the trends you're talking about? Well, they're small in absolute terms, but they're big in relative terms, right? So he's up maybe two or three points uh, with African-Americans and maybe four or five points with, with Latinos, which is, you know, those are small moves. But at the same time, he's down like seven points with white voters from where he was before. So it's a substantial relative shift, primarily of men, primarily of non-college graduates. And, you know, when you when you sort of dig into it, it's like it's not that shocking, right? Like one of the cultural dimensions on which we've been polarizing is a kind of gender dimension, right? Which some of which is explicitly about women's issues, but a lot of which is about there's always big gender gaps in things that involve violence, right? Whether it's like war or death penalty, um, things to do with police officers, things like that. Um, and so, you know, you have some working class men of color who have similar ideas to working class white men about like hierarchy and force and authority and things like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's a small trend, right? I mean, you know, you're talking about going from 8% of the black vote to maybe 11. Uh, so, you know, like broad stereotypes of like, what do African Americans think are not overturned by this, but it's a, it's a change. And clearly a thing that they put a lot of effort into at this convention, right? It is, it's hard to program a lengthy list of African-American speakers at a Republican convention. They're not like a ton of plausible candidates just sitting on the shelf and they, and they like dug deep to do it. It's interesting to me because it is hard for me to know. And there doesn't actually even need to be an answer to this question. They may just do it because Donald Trump wants to do it or they're not choosing between these strategies. But one of the interpretations of the heavy representation of non-white speakers at the RNC that many people had and that I somewhat share was that the intention of those speeches, and you often heard it said quite explicitly, like people rebutting the idea that Donald Trump is racist, was to make white, was to reassure white people that Donald Trump was not a racist and that you were not a racist for voting for him, that it has become dangerously culturally looked down upon, which is part of why Donald Trump is like hemorrhaging some white support to support Donald Trump. And so it, like these were messengers to tell you, you didn't need to feel that way. Like if you liked other things about Donald Trump, you didn't have to worry about these other comments he was making or the way he was talking about people. And then as you say, they also think, um, and, and I think really believe this a couple months ago when the uh, economic numbers looked better, but that they had a chance to, to, to turn this around with um, Hispanic and, and, and black voters. And as you say, they've made some gains there. They're not huge, but they're but they're there. And so I do think there are interesting trends. It's just when the when the movement is pretty small and you're dealing with the the transition into incumbency, right? Donald Trump is the president. And also people just have views about incumbents. Did they like the economy under Donald Trump for most of his term? Did things work out better for them for most of it? And they don't really feel coronavirus is his fault. It can be hard to, to peel apart what is happening and what isn't happening um, in what he's doing. The other thing, though, that, that we'd be remiss not to, to bring in here is that this whole convention was happening amidst uh, 
more police shootings amidst protest and riots in Kenosha, um, amidst this kid walking out and shooting protesters who turned out to be a Donald Trump fan, and then you know getting arrested the next day by police after he walks by police holding a gun. And there's a lot of, of, of anger and unrest. And this came up often in sort of Republican narratives around the convention. Trump did not hit it as hard tonight as I was actually expecting him to, but he definitely touched on it. And a, a really core theme of the convention was that if you elect Joe Biden, you will get anarchy and race wars basically in your streets. Just look at big cities run by Democrats. Um, there's a lot of ways to read this. Obviously, this has always been part of Trump's play, law and order. The 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 line he's trying to draw here is a little tricky because he's the incumbent amidst this disorder. And he's nevertheless trying to say, elect me to make sure it doesn't happen. The way he's trying to square that circle is to say, look, these are in, in, in Democrat ju- democratic jurisdictions because they tend to be in cities. But at the same time, I do think that for all we're talking about the ways in which Donald Trump doesn't deliver, that this is a way in which he kind of does deliver, where a lot of American politics right now is happening in the shadow of quite rapid demographic change. So now um, Americans under 15 are majority non-white. And people have heard this, but by about 2045, the country is expected to be majority non-white. And and as we move along that line, power is changing, um, who holds different cultural positions is changing, uh, particularly in culture, because culture tends to try to appeal to younger, um, more city-dwelling people. It reflects a changing America even faster than America is actually demographically changing. And Donald Trump really, like, wants to stand athwart history yelling stop and is promising his people that he will. And to the degree that what is happening here is a debate over power and who should be listened to and who should be understood as real Americans, Donald Trump, I think, has always delivered on that for his people. It's not exactly a policy debate, but it is a debate about who is going to be culturally represented and who the highest level of government is going to take seriously. And at the Democratic convention, this is true in 2016 and and true in 2020, like this time Joe Biden came out and said very clearly that he sees himself as governing in America in demographic transition. He's a transitional leader in that. He's uh, bringing on Kamala Harris, uh, an African-American, Indian-American woman to be his vice president. She would be um, the first of uh, both of those groups to be president if she won um, after his campaign uh, in, in the future. And Trump is saying that he's not going to do that. Like, it's, it's fine that white people run a bunch of stuff. There's nothing racist about that. Um, look at all these people, uh, people of color at his convention, and that he's going to keep fighting this fight. And behind the behind what's going on in the protests, and he was very explicit of this, these protesters who want with their as America changes to reimagine what America is, to say America has terrible sins it is not atoned for, a deep legacy of racism woven into its DNA, that it remains a racist country. Like he is not going to say that. He does not believe that. And like he is going to tell the country they don't need to feel that either. They, I think, in his mind, mostly being white people, but not only. And like that's a real clash of visions in these conventions, a clash about what America does and should mean, and a way in which I think that Trump connects to his base and upholds what that connection is authentically about. And I think that that is where the speakers of color at the convention play a role, because he's painting a... I mean, he's painting a a whiter version of America because that's who the Republican Party is. But he's also painting a vision. Well, it resembles the Republican Party of Florida, frankly, right, in which non-white people 
are in fact incorporated in many leading roles there. Uh, but nothing changes, right? So like one thing they, they said a couple of times was not just that like the radical left Democrats want to defund the police, but they want to tear down our institutions, right? And in so many of these Trumpian tableaus, you will see an African-American person who some of them like they got in trouble with the law. Some of them were on the straight and narrow the whole time, but they... Um, find Jesus and they join the military or they work in law enforcement, right? And and so it's to say that like the same structures and hierarchies that we have today can continue to exist. And Nikki Haley, in a line that I know like drove a lot of liberals nuts, she simultaneously said that like she had faced racial discrimination, but also said that America is not a racist country. Um, and some people were like dunking on her. It's like, how can you say this and then say the other thing? Uh, but I think it's very authentically what conservative people of color believe, which is not not that they're like uh, morons who can't see that racist things have happened, uh, but like they are saying what most white Americans want to hear, which is that like racism is real, but it's not that big of a deal. Right. And it doesn't require this like searching, grinding, everything has to change, just maybe a little bit of scolding like, hey, don't say that, you know, or like, yeah, that was bad. And it's like the, the, the forgiving attitude that you're supposed to have to Trump. Right. Which is like, eh, maybe that Taco Bell tweet was in poor taste. But like, what's the big deal? Whereas like a modern day progressive will like spin that out and be like, aha, but this tweet shows a fundamental lack of respect for our culture. And, da, da, da. you know, and it becomes like a whole big thing about America's original sins and and blah, blah, blah. And and that is like the core defining argument of the the Trump years. Um, and you saw when when Pat Lynch, the uh, New York police union guy, uh, gave his speech. And it was it, I've seen Pat Lynch speeches my whole fucking life because uh, I grew up in New York. And it, it was a restrained speech by his standards. But he like says that George Floyd's murder was terrible in there. But then he goes on to, as he has his whole career, like completely oppose any kind of change. That would stop it. Like, he just wants to say, like, yeah, man, like, that was bad. So I agree. But then if we change anything about how policing works, like chaos and anarchy um, will, will fall upon us. There's been a lot of talk, uh, just a ton of speculation in the politics world about whether this this gambit will work on Trump. Can he somehow pin riots on Biden while Biden denounces them? Can the incumbent like actually make political hay out of chaos that's happening while he's going? I'm a little skeptical. I'm, I'm a little skeptical that this politics can can work for Trump, although he, he's been successful in like introducing it as a concept. But I actually think the substantive question is interesting here uh, because it's just like genuinely true that policing the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin, or Chicago, Illinois, or Portland, Oregon is like not primarily a federal responsibility. The elected leaders in those places don't seem to be doing a very good job. And the the bad job they're doing is like, it's not just that the looting is happening, 
which I do think is bad, but it's also that it's not like the left is getting what it wants, right? Like these jurisdictions that are run by Democrats are not delivering on a like vision of justice or accountable police departments. They're certainly not like reimagining law enforcement and personal security, uh, but they are seeing their murder rates go up and store windows get smashed. And it's hard for an incumbent president to turn this against his challenger. But like, I actually think it's just like a good substantive question about, you know, the authorities in Chicago and Portland and Seattle and New York is like, what, what, what the hell are you doing? I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to hold this on the, the presidential question just because I haven't prepared enough to think about um, and looked into enough what I think the authorities should do in these cities. But I, I do want to make the point here that this is the kind of issue Trump likes, an issue where there is a lot of cultural heat and fury, but also nothing in particular for him to do about it, right? An issue where the actual question is simply which side is he as the president on? And you see this say in, and, and obviously this is a very related issue, the same issue on uh, on some level, when he was attacking the NFL for letting players kneel. Like that was not a federal policy issue. That was simply Donald Trump demonstrating to his base, but also to the the country broadly, which side he's on. I've seen a lot of Democratic freaking out. And there was a New York Times article talking to like four people in Kenosha about how this was going to potentially change their votes, about what this is going to do to the election more broadly. And, and what I will say is, one, I think this has been happening during the Republican convention, where Republicans really have the microphone in a pretty distinctive way. And so this is happening in uh, like an almost unanswered uh, fashion. And so the Republican narrative that it's anarchy and chaos in the streets is, is really dominating in a way that it didn't, notably, during, say, the George Floyd protests. There was that narrative, too, but it was very much in competition. And when you looked at the polling, losing out to this broader narrative that we have a, a terrible problem with the shooting of, of, of Black Americans in this country by police officers. And obviously, that's what started this too. At the same time, something that really struck me was the emergence, somewhat quietly because nobody really cared what the Democrats were saying this week. We were covering the RNC every single night, but of some very powerful Joe Biden messaging in response to what Trump was saying. And this is where I think Trump might end up getting in trouble here. Biden had this press release where the thematic basically was, is Donald Trump actually aware he's president? Because here he is presiding over this country with our riots in the streets, and he's blaming Joe Biden's like future administration for them. Here he is presiding over this country where all these people are dying from coronavirus, and here he takes no responsibility for it. And I actually think when you really get into the collision of these two guys, there will be questions stylistically in the debates, but then a lot more of this is going to happen in the commercial-based air war, that this is going to be the, the thing where, where Trump has some trouble. Because I think people know which side he's on. But the wedge in this is, is he doing a good job as president? And there's a funny sub-theme across the uh, RNC where... Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, Ivanka Trump would have these little like wink, wink, nod, nod bits in their speeches where they'd say, you know, Donald Trump, he has like a lot of ideas and he tells you them and sometimes he tweets things other people wouldn't. But in the end, he gets the job done. And what they're trying to do, which has always been the dominant narrative for Trump skeptic Trump voters is, look, the guy maybe is a little rough in his edges, says things that other people wish he wouldn't say. But he's really delivering as president. And 
in some ways, the danger for Trump is the reverse narrative. And that I think this is what it kind of opens him up to here, which is that he's actually just tweeting that stuff and not doing the job as president. He's tweeting all the stuff and not taking responsibility. He's tweeting all the stuff and making it worse. And so I don't know which of these will win out. Obviously, it depends on some level what happens in the streets of America between here and election day. But I am much less convinced that any of this ends up looking good for him at some point it is hard to be the incumbent running against the condition of the country you're governing. I'm Donald Trump. I fixed everything and you need to reelect me because America is beset by terrible problems and somebody needs to fix them is just truly weird messaging. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too ahead of myself on political speculation. What, what occurred to me over the past 48 hours, looking at the messages the White House was putting out, was how fundamentally dangerous it is to have a president whose team openly believes that they benefit politically from death and chaos, right? It it suggests that at the margin, to the extent that they can do anything to shape the course of events on the street, that like they want to make things worse um, rather than better. There's a limited federal role in this anyway, right? I mean, the stuff people are protesting about, it's both like bigger than the presidency and also smaller. Right. Like it's about how actual communities work and it's about the history of the country. You're not going to have like an executive order that like ends racism or completely reworks police departments anyway. Uh, But you can have an impact on like how people feel things are going, what's going on. And when you have them out there, both like ranting and raving against uh, destruction of property, but then also like rushing to the cable news networks every five minutes to be like, this is great for us. I hope they burn down some more stores. Like that's really bad. Like that, you could spiral into a into a really bad place. And and that's what you saw right on that second night in, in Kenosha is this kid, he gets his rifle, he drives there, and he's like, all right, I got to get in the mix here. And two people wind up dead, right? But that's what Trump is, is saying, essentially, right? He's not, you can't imagine Trump intervening constructively like this, but he's not on the phone with community leaders and organizing a beer summit and trying to calm things down and think about what are some legislative proposals that could happen because we all agree something must be done, right? Like that's not, he doesn't have that in him. He doesn't have in him whatever it might take uh, to make things better. And you know, it's like we can speculate until the cows come home as to like whether he can successfully wield this as as a political wedge. But just on substance, like who thinks that Trump is going to create like more good feelings and less disorder? Like it's it's inconceivable to me, uh, particularly because as much as he loves this like defunding argument, like he's going to create a really increasingly like crisis conditions in in city budgets around America that's going to make it impossible for anyone to just kind of like, like make everybody feel better, you know, by spreading some some money around. Like realistically, I think the best path to reforming police departments, you're probably going to have to spend more money on things, but then people are also going to want more in non-policing services. But what they're going to get under Trump is just less of everything. And it's, it's going to be just bad, bad on substance. Well, Kellyanne Conway did say she told Trump he should hold a domestic peace summit at Camp David, which I thought was 
maybe the single dumbest political uh, stunt idea I had ever heard. Oh my god! But she's on her way out, so yeah. You know, we're done. I, I will say I do want to emphasize something. Something you said as we wind up here, which is simply that we have seen Trump in a quite clear bid to create chaos that he thinks he will look good at the center of. It is being too political about it to say overreach here, um, although that did happen as well politically, but 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 cause real damage, right? So we saw this when he had um, the. Uh, military tear gas people in Lafayette Park so he could walk through it and then take a picture awkwardly holding a Bible. We have watched him escalate in these moments because he thinks it will look good if he's standing at the center of it as as law and order. Um, Other people have made the point before that law and order tends to mean uh, a very racialized form of lawlessness and disorder, um, and it tends to come from these presidents who themselves are lawless and disorderly. And so... I don't think it'll work politically, but I agree with you that it is deeply dangerous. And in some weird way, it's why on the final night of the RNC, I was semi-comforted by Trump's relative normalcy when he does his teleprompter speeches are often just less bombastic. But the thing about his teleprompter speeches is they last exactly until he gets back to his Twitter account. And so I've just, I heard a lot of liberals who are sort of watching this like with a fearful eye all week living inside its confines. But tomorrow we're back to Trump business as usual. And the the grim truth is we still have months until the election. And even if he loses it, many months until he's out. And on all these issues, coronavi- coronavirus, um, violence, uh, like anything you might want to think, we're just living in a void of governance right now. Like nobody has the wheel. Not Trump. It's not even that he's steering it most of the time in a bad decision. Like he just doesn't have the wheel. We have no coronavirus plan. Like it breaks my heart. Like a lot of like hearing Vice President Mike Pence say, Joe Biden says there's no miracle coming, but we're a nation of miracles and we might have a vaccine by the end of the year. Like how many people die between now and the end of the year because we don't have an actual coronavirus plan? And if we don't have that vaccine, not just here, but it's effective and scaled up and manufactured and well distributed by the end of the year, how many people die while we wait for that to happen? So like that's where I kind of put this at the end. Like the speeches there are the speeches, but like we are living inside a catastrophic governance failure. Well, and you're right. I mean, like Mike Pence literally said their plan is to hope for a miracle. And so, I mean, like, what what is that? You know, and and the number of speeches here that like had the theme that like basically like Trump needs like a do-over because the pandemic doesn't count, it, it really is like I don't know, man. Like, obviously, it's not his fault per se that this virus came. But, like, he's done a bad job. And also, that's, like, that's the job you sign up for. He he was bragging in his speech tonight that that the hurricane, which was so incredibly powerful, wound up being less destructive than people had thought because it kind of perfectly shot the middle between a couple of cities. And he was... You could see he was bragging. It was like he wanted credit for having steered the wind away from the population centers. Uh, But also, it's not his fault that we have this pandemic. And it's like the world doesn't work like that. It's very, it just continues to be frightening. You know, like we, we don't know what the next few months have to hold, but we know that the people in charge don't accept any responsibility for outcomes. Yeah, it is extraordinarily frightening. But- 
that's where we are. All right. Let's wrap it up. Wrap it up. Go to bed. All right. Thanks, Ezra. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. I should probably mention that you should buy my book. Still available for pre-order. Full of hope. It even has a stupid covered wagons analogy, just like Trump's speech, but it's way shorter uh, than his one, which which went on forever. You need editors. I worked with a great one. Um, all right. And the weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>